Well, we're in a series uh, that we're calling Context, and we're, we're looking at some of the most abused, misapplied, misunderstood, uh, taken out of context passages in the Bible. We looked a couple weeks ago at Matthew 7, do not judge so that you will not be judged, and uh, hopefully we corrected our understanding there. That verse is widely used and abused to kind of keep people at bay and, and not uh, confront and speak into your life and sort of mind your own business. It's kind of how we use that verse, and we, we, we hopefully corrected that. And Last week, we had the privilege of looking at Jeremiah 29, 11 and uh, destroying our hopes and dreams with regards to that verse. And uh, I, I, I was telling Karen, uh, I almost feel guilty and it's like sorry in a sense doing this verse like this, you know, magician who's mad and just goes and destroys all the secrets to, to magic or something. We were... We were, uh, my, my goal here is not to only, it's not only to fix our understandings again, but it's to teach us how to, te- how to study the Word. And every passage has one truth that it communicates. The application can be many, but the interpretation is one. God meant one thing when He wrote these passages through these men. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm saying I feel kind of guilty. I don't mean to crush, I'm a people pleaser, and I do not mean to crush you know, our, 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 our love for these things. It's just that we were, we were I, don't, I don't want us to feel like we can't enjoy these passages anymore. I, I, I kind of feel bad sometimes. I want to enjoy them rightly. Um, you know, that I don't, I don't, I don't want to feel like, well, check with Pastor Chris first before we quote this verse to make sure we're quoting this in the right context. We were, we were the other day we were out with some people and, and we, we were out, it was a group setting, and I told my wife, I said, I had just finished this, this is the passage that we were going to do today, Matthew 18, 20. And we go out and I said, I said, Karen, I promise you, watch, I promise you, they're going to, they're going to quote this passage tonight. I promise you they will. It was the perfect setting for the perfect abuse of Matthew 18, 20. And no good Christian is going to miss the opportunity to abuse this passage in that setting. I'm just telling you, they're not. And I said, I, I promise you, sure enough, where two or three are gathered, I'm there with you. And Stacy Hudson looks over me and says, did he just quote that out of context? I'm like, Karen, I don't want to be that guy. You know, I do not want to be that guy. It's like, well, let me run it by Pastor Chris before we can enjoy this passage. And really, you know, um, you know I, I just don't want, I don't want to do that. I, I don't want to, I, I want to increase our awe and amazement of God's word and our I want us to handle it with care, and I hope you hear my heart there. Um, You know, ironically, the verse that night that was taken out of context was the verse that we were going to study. And, um, you know, again, if you want to get a crowd hyped up, if you want them to really feel like they're a part of something really special, and and if you want them to really feel like, hey, you're a great leader, and you've really, you've ushered in the Lord's presence, you quote Matthew 18, 20, and that's exactly what this individual did. And, and, of course, the crowd got all hyped, and everybody starts yelling and screaming. Because, you know, hey, two or three are gathered there. The Lord must be there. That's what, I mean, that's what Matthew, 15, uh, Matthew 18, 20 says. And, unfortunately, this is one of those abused passages. And not only 18, 20, we could, we could look at 18, 19. If two or three of you on earth agree about anything, they may ask, and it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. A very abused passage by the prosperity gospel, health and wealth, name it, claim it, 
type of, type of folk there. there. There are many in this passage that are abused, and so I, I want to specifically deal with one, but, but we'll deal with, with others. And, and, you know, again, the verse is, you, how exciting to think that God is here, and so you quote that verse. And, and again, 1820, if we just take a very narrow look without looking at context, without looking at the whole chapter, without seeing how that verse fits into the chapter it's found, that it finds itself in, that's exactly what you will walk away thinking. Hey, if two or three Christians are gathered together, God must be in their midst. And if you only look at that verse, that, that's what we would walk away. I mean, there's 250, 260 people here today, so God really must be in our midst. I mean, if that's what it means. And again, if we only look at that verse in, 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 very, in a microscopic, very uh, focused way where we only just pluck that out and only quote that verse by itself, that seems to be what it's saying. And, and you just get two or three together, and, and there you have it. Authority, blessing, power, just get two or three together and just carte blanche on the promises of God. But, but is that really what this verse is saying? And that's what I want to deal with today. Th this verse offers an amazing promise. It's just not what we make it out to be. The reality and the, the irony is, is that what we abuse this verse to say is said other places in Scripture and would be better quoted than this one. The reality is in Psalm 139, 7-10, David says, Where can I flee from your presence? God is omnipresent. We'll see that. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6 says he, he dwells in us. We're the temple. And again, it, it's, it's, uh, it's the, the abuse, the way that we abuse this verse is it is a, it is a misrepresentation of this verse. It's not necessarily a, a mistruth. You know, at that gathering, there were a lot of Christians. There were thousands and thousands of Christians. Was God there? Absolutely, He was there. He's in me. You don't need to quote that verse to, to get people all hyped up to understand the presence of God. He, he's with you always, it says. David said, where can I go from your presence? If I go to the highest of heights, the lowest of depths, to the east, to the west, where can I go and, and not be in your presence? The point is you can't. He's omnipresent. And so I want to approach this verse the way that we've approached others and, um, and, and set the context first to help us see the context. And so hopefully out of that, the understanding, the, the, the interpretation of this verse will flow out of an understanding of the context. Again, context is king, context. So you'll see on your handout, if you want to follow along with the, with the fill-ins there, the handout that was in your, your horizons, you'll see number one, point number one, the context of Matthew 18, 20 is Jesus' teaching about the affection of God for His children. Kingdom is a huge deal in Matthew, We've, we saw that when we looked at Matthew 7, 1. Kingdom is a huge deal. It's a huge theme in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is written to Jews. It, it has a, a strong Jewish audience. And it is written in such a way to, to speak to that audience. And, and Jesus answers many of the questions here. And Matthew highlights Jesus' answers about the kingdom. What will the kingdom be like? What will, what will, what will its citizens be like? 
And, and how Matthew goes about this is teaching a con through contrast. And we saw that in Matthew 7. He is contrasting what the Pharisees and what earthly kingdoms prioritized and what they were like versus what God's kingdom is and will be like. That's what he's teaching. And Matthew 18 fits very nicely into the development of that theme. If we go all the way, if you turn back to the beginning of Matthew 18, we see some clear truths that are being taught that affect how we interpret verses 15 through 20 and how they fit into the greater context of Jesus' teaching. And when we scan back to the broader context, when you, when you kind of go from here to way back here, and, and you look at the broader context of Matthew 18, you see, you see clearly that God is showing through the teaching of Jesus what the kingdom will be like. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? How to get into the kingdom? How God loves those who are in the kingdom? How we as a people, as we are part of the kingdom, citizens of the kingdom, how do we respond to others within the kingdom? How do we respond not only to God, but to others? And, and when you scan back to the context of Matthew 18, you'll see on your handout there, you see five characteristics that dominate Matthew 18 regarding the, the citizenship, the citizens of the kingdom of God. And this is going to play a role in what we see in Matthew 15, Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And the first characteristic is childlike humility. Verse 1, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set, the, set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as a child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. There, there's a childlike humility in how we approach Christ and how we come to Christ and how we obey Christ. Again, he's, he's showing that in contrast of that day Children would not have been, that would not have been the leader, the, the number one rank in a kingdom that they would have been looking for, not childlikeness. He goes on to say in, in seven and following, he, he gives a characteristic, a pursuit of holiness. You see it on your handout. Not only childlike humility, but a pursuit of holiness for ourselves and others. He says, verse seven, woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. You see the pursuit of holiness. Anything in our life that causes us to stumble, that causes others to stumble, we're to, we're to set it aside to pursue holiness that fervently. Verses 10 and 11 talk about a characteristic being a love for one another. A love for one another. That ought to mark body of believer, the citizens of heaven, a love for one another. 
But you see in verses 12 through 15, a willingness to seek reconciliation with those who wonder. This is a beautiful passage about the love that God has for his people and his sheep. What do you think? Verse 12, if any man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go to search for the one that is straying? If it turns out that he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 which have not gone astray. So it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones perish. You, you see, there are a great love of the Father to go after, to seek and save, not only the lost, but his sheep that wander. You, and, and verses 15 through 20 the context that we're looking at today and confronting one another fits perfectly within that context, not only of how God does that, but how God does that through you and me. How you and I are used by God to go after the sheep that wander, to go after the believer who, who is enticed by sin and wanders away from the fold. It fits perfectly in that context. Verses 21 through 35, we won't read them, but it is a, a strong, strong statement about forgiveness and how we who have been forgiven ought to forgive others in the same way. Again, 15 through 20 fit perfectly in that context. That, that's the context of Matthew 18, 15 through 20. It is how the, the citizens of God's kingdom look after one another and further God's plan for going after His sheep that wander and displaying His love for each other. We do that. We love one another on behalf of God. We're literally showing His love for us and others through how we love one another. And part of that is going after wandering sheep. It's going after sheep that sin. We do that on not out of a love for God, but out of a love for one another. And throughout this chapter, Jesus is demonstrating how God loves us and how, how He responds to us when we sin. And then He goes on to say that you ought to respond to each other in the same fashion that He responds to us. God pursues us. And we ought to pursue one another, and He does it in love. And really what, what the passage here is teaching is, how, is this. How God loves us teaches us how to love one another. The way that God loves you, He is teaching you how you ought to love one another. A, a good father watches out for his children. You know, I, we, Bradley and I, Saturday morning, got up and I, I was going to go for a jog. And Bradley said, hey, well, can I ride my bike? next to you while you run. I said, yeah, absolutely, come on. So um, we got near the end of the run, and I was tired, and Bradley says, hey, can we, can we go see the cows? Can we, can we ride down and see the cows? I said, out of selfishness and just tiredness, at that moment I said, you can go see the cows. I'm going to sit here under this tree and rest while you go see those cows. I'm tired. And uh, I mean, I'm thinking for the last quarter of a mile, I don't think he pedaled one time. I'm, I'm running the whole time. I'm tired. It was hot. But, but as, he, as, he, as he crossed the road to, to, to drive, to pedal down this road to see the cows, just as something as a father kicked in and said, you know what, Chris, get up and follow him and watch him. 
So I jogged behind him. He didn't know I was there, but the whole time that he was playing with the cows and feeding the cows and talking to the cows and all that, I was watching him. Why? Because that's what a father does. If anything would have happened to him in that whole time, I would have been right there to look after him. I didn't just let him wander off. And, and you know, that's, that's the picture of a church. That's, that's the way God deals with us. He says, if one of the sheep, if one of the hundred, if one of the hundred wander off, he goes after him. He goes after him. And that's the, what a good father does. A good father watches after his children. A good father has affection for his children. That's the context. And you see it, you see it there on your handout. God loves his children. Please hear that. The context for why we go after other believers when they sin, why we confront other believers when they sin, is why God loves his children. But not only that, when you see, when you see the whole context, you see that God values his children. He cherishes them. They're valuable. We'll see in Matthew 18 that the word here is literally, it's a word for wealth. When it says you have one, if your brother or your sister listens and repents, you have won them back. The word there means you have gained great wealth. That's the illustration it's pointing to. But, but not only that, not only does God love and cherish, God desires holiness for his children. Holiness. And if, and if God desires that for me, we ought to desire that for one another. Love and a value of holiness drive this entire section. This is the context. This is why we see what we see in verses 15 through 20, how they fit into the context, the backdrop, even what he says, I say to you, if two or you agree on earth about anything they, that they may ask, it will be done. For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in your midst. God is, we will see it, God is offering a tremendous promise and encouragement for doing what he has called us to do he's literally saying i got your back not just hey get a bunch of people together i'm in your midst the promise of this verse is so much bigger it's about god loving and valuing and pursuing his children and he's saying look when you do it my way i got your back no matter what happens i got your back and, and, and without the context, what we see in verses 15 through 20 make little sense. God's not just commanding us to do this, to, that we would be judges and just constantly looking for sin. He's saying, no, no, I love you. I, I desire holiness and purity for my bride. Look at, verse, look at Ephesians 5. He says he loves us in a way that, that we would be without spot or without wrinkle. How does he do that? He washes us with the word. It's through the pursuit of the word. And this chapter is about a father's love for his children and how this love, the love of the father for us, how that love affects how we love his children. That's why the, the, the mission statement as, as we move forward is simply this, love God, love others. The Bible is very clear. If we would do that, we, we'd change not only this body but the world. Love God, love others. It's real simple. Now, it's complicated to play out because we're sinners. But love God, love others. That's what he's saying here. This is a picture of God's love for his children and how the way that we have been loved by God affects how we love one another. 
And this will include confronting each other with sin. That, that's the context. Do, you, you love your children, right? I mean, just say yes. Even if you don't, just say yes. They're not always lovable. Sometimes you have to, in faith, go back to the Scriptures and say, children are a gift of God. Children are a gift of God. Children are a gift of God. You know, he, God is absolutely right when He says that. They're absolutely a gift. It's our own sinfulness. It's their sinfulness that's complicated. But listen, when, when, when your, children, when your trim, children wander, you go looking for them. I, I've told you the story. I got, when I was growing up, my, my, my dad's family lived in Ohio. I got lost in Ohio. And my mom had everybody and their brother, the police, the firemen, everybody. I mean, I was lost, lost in this neighborhood. Hours and hours and hours lost. Now, unfortunately, I got lost in a, basically a matter of walking from that wall of this property to that wall of this property, but that's, that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but listen to me. You know what? And, and, and I remember when I came, I, I, I was walking down the street crying, and this man was washing his car. He asked me, hey, what's going on? I said, hey, I'm lost. These are my grandparents. He said, hey, I know where they are. He took me. Dumb. I, I mean, again, this was way back when. I'm old. But uh, he, I remember getting out of the car, and my mom is bawling, and she runs up and grabs me, and I say, Mom, why are you crying so hard? You know why? Because her child was lost. Something of value had wandered away, had been lost. And if that's the affection we have for our children, can you imagine the affection God must have for His children? And when we wander away, that's the context. It's a loving God and fellow believers in such a way, loving God and fellow believers in such a way that we care about each other's holiness enough to even confront them in their sin when they're not repentant. Was there discipline? There, yes, my mom and dad and I had a strong conversation afterwards. I, I was there with my cousin. My cousin lives there. It was my, my cousin lives in the neighborhood. And in my pride, she said, you go this way. And my pride said, Stormy, you go this way. And guess what? Stormy and her pride said, fine, go that way, Chris. I don't care. And I was lost just like that. See, the love of God that he has for us, you and me individually, causes us, motivates us, allows us, fuels us. Again, the scripture is very clear. In this is love. Not that we love, but what? God loved us first. How do we learn how to love? By looking at how God loves us. In, in his kindness, Romans 2, 4, God's kindness and tolerance does what? Leads us to repentance. When we sin, we need to repent. And this is how a church, a called out group of believers responds to the love of God in each other. That's what the context is. How do we respond to a brother or a sister who has sinned and is not repenting? And again, listen, without a love of God, without a love for one another, without understanding how God loves us, verses 15 through 20 will not make sense. And that is why, quite honestly, why very, very few churches ever deal with Matthew 15 through 20 in chapter 18. Why they ever follow through and do with it. Do anything with it. What, what we see here is a part of, of loving one another. It is how a church 
shows its love for one another. We go after you when you sin. We confront you in your sin. But we do it lovingly, and we do it with the right motives, and we do it with the right way. And so God, in his mercy, is showing us here how we do that. How do citizens in his kingdom respond to one another? And, and that leads to the second point in your handout. As a member of the kingdom of God, and in response to how God pursues us, believers are to pursue reconciliation with one another when we sin or when we are sinned against. Pursue reconciliation. Why? Because God pursues us. And that's the context. The context here is God's love for His sheep and how that motivates us and guides us in how we confront a fellow believer who is in sin. And Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, is about how to confront another in sin. And the promise here is that when we do it God's way, we can be confident that God has our back and endorses what we are doing. The problem is, if we're honest, we, do not, we rarely go about it God's way and we get what we get. And we can be confident. Every single characteristic that we saw earlier, humility, willingness to come confront, forgiveness, pursuit of holiness, love, all of those are integrated into verses 15 through 20. They're marks of God's people, even how we confront. It's very interesting when you look at Matthew 18. This is the second time, the second time that... That Jesus mentions the church. The first one is in 1618, and he says, I will build my church. This, this body of believers does not belong to Chris Basham. I'm the under shepherd. Jesus is your chief shepherd, he's the owner. He says, I will build my church. The second time the church is referenced here in Matthew 18, guess what it deals with? Discipline. Of all the things it could speak to about church, of all the things, it's discipline. Why? Because holiness is, is a priority of God. It, it may not be of man's, but it's God's. And of all the things that he could talk about, of all the things that God could offer us wisdom to in regards to church, it's discipline and how to deal with sin. It's that important. The gathering of the believers, the purpose of the believers in, is dealing with sin. There's all sorts of reasons, again, why church discipline will not be done in our churches. But there is one reason why it must be done, and it's this. God commanded it. And we do it out of faithfulness. We do it out of trust. Does it always work? It does not. But we do it. And we do it the way that God commanded it. The issue is trust. The issue is, who are we here to please, God or man? Are we here to make friends with man? Or are we here to, to please and glorify and honor God? We've seen that. 1 Peter 3. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. We said that verse 14 there is a quotation of, of Isaiah 8, 12. And the people there were, were, were more worried about man than God. They were fretting the same things that man worries about when they had God on their side. It's the same thing. Who are we here to please? God or man? The reality is a church in today's culture that deals with sin, a church that does this, is probably not going to be, in the world's eyes, the most popular church. Calling sin, sin? Hello. Not just letting anybody come and do whatever they want to do and just trying to fill it up? Hey, that, that's, the, that's the way today's world operates. 
As a church, you see it on your handout, we are to a, be, be a people who lovingly deals with sin. Why? That's how God deals with us. And in the context that Matthew 18 falls, holiness is the issue, and we're to pursue that. We're to pursue holiness not only ourselves, we're here to help others pursue holiness. Why? Because this church belongs to God. This body of believers called a church is to represent God. We are to be holy, as 1 Peter says, as your Father is holy. That's our nature, and, and, and it is a love for God and a love for one another that God uses. When we do things His way, He grows His church. Let me give you an example of, of the way God's ways and man's ways, they would collide. In Acts 5, you know the story, but in Acts 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira. They, they have this piece of property, they decide to sell it, and they lie about the offering. They lie about their offering and the sale of their property. They, they, lie, they, they bring an offering and they, they just flat out lie uh, about all the details. And, and what happens? God struck them down and killed them. He struck down Ananias. Sapphira, Sapphira comes in about three hours later. They ask her the same questions. She says, oh, yeah, 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 here's the same. Burnt. Dead. Listen, on the front end, probably not the best way to grow a church. Listen, suppose you go to work tomorrow and you're telling and someone says, hey, I was church yesterday. And you're like, awesome. Two people lied about the offering. They died. <laughs> like, you want to come with me Sunday? I'll pass. There ain't nobody coming. There ain't nobody coming to that church. Like, you're going to make the headlines for all the two people died at Odessa for lying about the offering. You, you t- like, like roaches scattering when you turn on the lights. People will be so far away from here. But, but interesting, interesting. But look at the world's response. You look at the world's response. Go in, in Acts 5, verses 12 and following. It says, or starting verse 11. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all in one accord with Solomon's portico. But none of the rest, listen, none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. You see how God grew His church through holiness? And dealing with stuff? They were in awe that many were, and many were saved. People, you know, many wouldn't associate with them, but yet many got saved. And holiness, not worldliness, is what we're to be about. Pursuit of God, not man. Do we pursue man with the gospel? Yeah, because we're pursuing God first. And out of a love for God and one another, we are willing to confront sin. That's Matthew 18. And God gives us instructions here how to do that. And, and you see on your handout how to biblically confront sin. And again, even this is going to be so contrary to our nature. Lots of questions about this people have, but the passage is very clear. This is God's wisdom over man's wisdom. This is faith on our part. It's trusting. It's out of a love for God, a love for others. The first step you see on your handout, confront the believer privately. We we don't have any idea here what the sin was. We don't know the degree to what it was. We don't know... In our, in our language, was it big? Was it, what was it? We, we don't know who was offended. 
We don't have a whole lot of details. Some of your manuscripts in the New American Standard, it says, if your brother sins. Some of the earlier manuscripts says, against you, if your brother sins against you. We, we don't know who was sinned against here. It doesn't really matter, though, in the sense that it doesn't change the text. What we do see here is a command to confront a sinner with their sin. If you know of a sin, and the person who committed that has not repented, has not dealt with it, maybe they don't even, they're not aware of it, then help their brother or sister deal with it by confronting them privately in their sin. Notice the first step, privately, one-on-one. Again, I've said this before, it's not the pastor, you don't run to a deacon, you don't run to an elder, you don't go tell 50 people and get counsel about it, you go to them privately, one-on-one, why? To keep the circle as small as possible, why? Because that's how you'd want your sin to be dealt with. I don't want my sin out there all out, I don't want everybody knowing about it. If I've sinned against you, then, then love me and love God enough to come to me and tell me and let's work it out. Let's work it out between the two of us. This step right here is where 99.9% of all of our struggles are to be dealt with one-on-one, privately, in love. One-on-one. Listen, anything other than this, to do anything other than to confront your brother or sister in their sin is sin on your part. God has shown us how to handle this. To go about it any other way is sin. Listen, to talk about another person's sin before you've talked to that person about their sin is a violation of love. I dare say it's even gossip. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment. To, To go and talk about other people's sin with other people is not edifying. It's not loving. It doesn't build them up. Speak to the person who sinned. Love them as you would want to be loved and be willing to forgive them. Again, the context is a forgiveness in verse 21. You you and I have been forgiven in Christ an immense debt, an immense debt. That's 21 through 35. Any debt that you and I have against one another pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ forgave you and I of. Please, please, please know that. That's the point. So for me not to give Karen, or Karen not to forgive me, and yet over here I try to bask in the forgiveness of Christ, is, is sinful. And that, that's what 21 and 35 is talking about. Be willing to forgive. And think about that. Think about that. To, the goal here is to win our brother or sister back. Gossiping, telling other people about their sin, simply hardens that person to sin. It hardens that person to the church. It in no way helps in winning them back. It actually makes them resentful towards the church, and it further segregates the body. And the goal, look at verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. The goal here is to win them back. It's, it's exactly the picture of what we see in Matthew 18, 12 through 14 when Jesus leaves the 99 and goes after the one. The, the word here for one, I mentioned it earlier, is a word that was used for commerce in the marketplace. It is a word that was used for the accumulation of great wealth. 
The, the picture here is that a brother or a sister who is unrepentant, who wanders away, who isn't dealing with their sin, is a net loss to the body of Christ. It is a loss. And you're going after it. And if you win them back, it's a gain. It's a profit for the body of Christ. That's the picture. And the goal, listen, the goal of doing this, the goal of confronting a believer with your sin, you see it in your handout, it is to be, re it's redemptive. It's not to point out their sin. It's not to expose them. It's not for you to be arrogant. It's not for you to lord over them. It's redemptive. Repentance is the goal. Restored fellowship is the goal. It's the protection of one another for the good of the body and for the God's glory to rid of sin. And again, most church discipline is to happen right here. No pastors involved, nobody else involved. One-on-one. -on -one. You resolve it, you forgive one another, and you move on. The issue is this, do we love God enough and do we love one another to enough to do this, to deal with sin? Not just to sit back and let it go or say that's their problem or whatever. It, this is not a call for all of us to constantly be looking for sin. We're talking about unrepentant sin. It's not, we're, not, we're not called to walk around hoping we get to do this. But we will do it if we need to. Sin is like a cancer to the body of Christ. No, nobody, when they go to the doctor and they say, hey, you have this tiny little spot of skin cancer on your back. You're like, oh, don't worry about it. It's tiny. Don't worry about it. Nobody would say that. And yet the Bible is very clear, whether it's Galatians 5 we just saw, whether it's 1 Corinthians 5, sin is like leaven. And a little bit of leaven, you know what it does? It leavens the whole lump. You know, skin, you know what cancer does? Cancer wants to work its way through your whole body. That's the way sin is. It starts off small. A little leaven, it says, leavens the whole lump. And people have value to God, therefore people have value to us. That's the picture. And so we pursue them. This is Luke 15. If you were to, we don't have time... Luke 15, Luke 16, you have the parable of the lost sheep, you have the parable of the lost coin, you have the parable of the lost son. All of them is a picture of this. That which is lost has value, and so it is pursued. It's pursued. People have value. Christians, God loves his children. And so we pursue them. And if it works, you've won, his, you've won your brother or your sister back. If it doesn't work, there's a second step in verse 16, and you see it in your handout. If the, se the second step and the first step one doesn't work, it's to confront the believer with one or two others. Look at verse 16. If he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of one, two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Jesus takes us all the way back here to Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19.15, listen to what it says. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. The pattern has already been established. You've confronted a believer in their sin. They refuse to repent. So you know what you do? You, you, you pray about it. You pray for wisdom. You get one or two other solid, mature believers who love this individual and you go to them, and here's why you go to them. First of all, you go to them humility to confirm. You're going to them because, look, you may go to them and say, look, this is what happened. You know what they might say to you? That's not a sin. You know what they might say to you is that's more your issue than, than the big picture issue. They might tell you to drop it, that it's not a sin. 
Or they might confirm that it actually is a sin. In that case, you go and confront. But again, the, the goal here is to keep the circle as small as possible. It's to keep it as small as possible. You confront them. If, again, the goal is redemptive. The third step, if, if, that, if that doesn't work, if they, don't, if they don't listen to one or two of you with you, that you go to them, the third step is you tell it to the church. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Okay, at this point, the church is made aware of the situation. And again, this is not a, on Monday, I, per, I, con, I, I confronted him on Monday. On Tuesday, I took Johnny and Melissa on Wednesday so we can get this done by the Wednesday service. That's not the point. This is a drawn out, this is, this is a lengthy thing. We're not trying to rush through this. And again, this is contrary to our, Look, I guarantee you in all of our flesh, you're like, tell it to the church. What? Listen, the goal here is this. It's to gang up on the believer in love. It's to show the believer the love that you have for them. It's to, in love, confront the believer. To show them how valuable they are, how loved they are. This is a picture of a group of Christians pleading with a brother or a sister to come back to Christ. It is an act of love, and it is an act of mercy. It, and again, it says to the church, it doesn't, don't go outside the church. They, they don't need to know about our junk. They don't need any more reasons to hate us. They don't need any more reasons to call us hypocrites. Tell it to the church. You as a family, you keep things amongst your family. You don't want your kids out there in the playground telling all your junk. We don't want that either. It's a family issue. Tell it to the church. Bad-mouthing the church to the world, that makes no sense. That is not helpful in our mission in reaching the world. And if that doesn't work, he says this. If he refuses to listen even to the church... And this is where it gets really challenged to our flesh. Let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax collector. Number D there, let number D. Letter D on your handout. Remove the believer from the church. They're no longer welcome to worship here. They're no longer welcome to fellowship until they repent. That, that's what's meant here by treat the person as a tax collector or a Gentile or an unbeliever. And our skewed vision of mercy and love and church and all this, is like, no, everyone's welcome no matter how you're not. That's not biblical. It's not biblical. This is a group of people who are, who are sinners. Are we sinners? Yes, but we're repenting. And it, we're a group of people who value purity. And, 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 and it's not just about growth. It's about purity. And we don't compromise purity for the sake of fitting into a culture, for the sake of people liking us. True love, listen, true love deals with things and draws them back. And the goal is redemptive. So what do you do? You take away something that is valuable. We don't, we don't understand this today because here's the thing. If we did that to somebody today, you know what they do? They would just go down the street to another church and act like nothing ever happened. In, in the day that this was written, that wouldn't be the case all these believers had was the fellowship of one another. To take that away was devastating. For us today, we would just go to another church and act like nothing ever happened. You're, you're taking something away that's valuable. Why? To draw them back. 
to draw them back. And look, church discipline, it's about the purity of the church. You see this clearly. You say, well, you know, that's one place. Well, in Matthew, in 1 Corinthians 15, a man is having an inappropriate relationship with his mother-in-law, I mean, with his stepmom. And Paul, look, they, the church, they refuse to deal with it. Paul says, you have become arrogant and have not mourned so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Paul says, in the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to live, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, this is for his good. This church was boasting about, oh, we accommodate anybody, we let everything go. You know what Paul says in verse 6? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so the new lump. You know, he goes in verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean immoral people of this world or with the covetous and idolaters and swindlers. For then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called believer if he is an immoral person or covetous or idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler. Not, listen to this. Not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Remove the wicked man from among yourselves, he says. Why? To ultimately draw him back. To ultimately save his soul. We saw this in Galatians 6.1. If any, of you, if any brother is caught up in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, but do it with a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves so that you will not be tempted also. Go after him. 2 Thessalonians 3, same thing. Go after him. Deal with sin. That's the context. That is the context that we find verse 20. And real quickly, number three on your handout. I, I say all that so we will understand what is said here in verse 20. When we pursue reconciliation with a believer as God's word prescribes, we can be confident that God is in agreement with us and that his power and presence are with us. Listen to me. Nobody looks forward to church discipline or to confronting a believer in their sin. Nobody looks forward to that. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. I, I've told you all, I, my, Karen and I were in a restaurant one time and on the booth behind us, there was a man that I knew very well, and, and he was sitting with a woman who was not his wife, and it was very obvious that this was not a business deal. And, and you can imagine when you go to sit down and try to just have breakfast with your wife, and that's what you find, breakfast is off at that point. And I called the guy. He, I tried to maneuver so I could walk, I tried to be, you know, like, how am I going to do with this? Do I just walk up and say, hey, you don't look like this guy's wife. You know, what do I do here? And um, So I tried to go around. Well, he, he and they get up. They notice we're here and they, they're gone. So I called the guy. And, and he, he gave this long excuse about what was going on and just something in my spirit just said, he's lying, Chris, he's lying. And I said, I said, buddy, I, I don't believe you. The, and I said, Tomorrow at 3 o'clock, I'm giving you till tomorrow at 3 o'clock, I'm going to call your wife, I'm going to tell her what I saw, and I'm going to verify your story. And I said, I hope with everything that's in me, I hope she says that you're right and I look like a fool. I hope, I hope that I look like a fool here, but I don't believe you. And, and unfortunately, this man was in an affair. 
with that woman. And by the grace of God, that confrontation caused the affair to cease, and their marriage today is stronger than it ever has been. And they will tell you that. That's not to my praise. That's not to my glory. They did the hard work to reconcile, to forgive, to deal with it. But it involved confronting sin. Listen to me, who knows what would have happened to this man and his family and even his own life and this other person's family that was married had, had by God's grace, he not put Karen and I in that restaurant at that exact time sitting behind this man. But, but we were willing to confront the sin. I didn't want to do it. I didn't enjoy doing it. But listen to me, I love the purity of the church. This man was a believer. And I love the purity of the church more than anything. And what, what, he, what we see in verse 20 in the context is this. It's a wonderful promise. You see it on a handout that where the, when we confront a believer the way that God commands that we do that, when we walk obediently through these steps, what God is saying in verse 20 is that we are assured of the presence and the power of God when we deal with sin biblically. It's not just a random promise that, hey, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am in your midst. He's saying, no, where two or three have prayed and, and sought wisdom and are lovingly seeking another believer in their sin, I'm with you. And it also tells the person who is being confronted, if these two other brothers and sisters have prayed about it and have sought the Lord about it and are in agreement about your sin, take heed. Listen. Maybe God in His grace is using these individuals to draw you out of something you may not even recognize in your own life. Do we have the presence of God at all times? We do as believers. That, that's not what the, but that's not what this passage is talking about. And, and think about that for a moment. In the morning when, 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 when I study the Word of God by myself, is God not with me? In the morning when I pray alone, just me and God, and I pray for you and, every, and others. Is God not with me? Do I, do I, Karen, please come in the room. We need two or three for God to be with us. No, that's not what he's saying. And it sounds great to misquote this verse and get the crowd all hyped up because they, oh, yeah, God's with us. He's here. He's here. Look, he was here before he misquoted that verse. He was here. The reality is, as believers, the problem is this. We don't recognize that 1 Corinthians 6, I am the temple of God. You, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, by his death, burial, and resurrection alone, you always have the presence of God inside of you. The reality of, of, of the truth is this. When you're at home on the computer by yourself, God is with you. He sees you. When you're at home watching television, boys and girls, men and women, by yourself, and you don't think anybody else knows what you watch, guess who knows what you watch? When you read stuff you shouldn't read and no one else knows you read it, guess who knows what you read? When you think things and you allow yourself to dwell, and 1 Corinthians says take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, when you think nobody else knows what you think about that person, guess who does know what you think about that person? God, because He's in you. The Holy Spirit, you're the temple. The word there in 1 Corinthians 6 is naos. It literally, it literally is the, whole, it's the word that was used in the Old Testament for the holy of holies. Only the priest went in. That's the word for you and me. What, what God is saying here, what Jesus is saying is this. God is going to back you when you confront others with sin and you do it God's way. 
Listen, we don't need two or three believers gathered to experience His presence because God is everywhere present. That word there is omnipresent. Beyond that, He lives inside of you. He dwells in you. That's why Paul says, Do you not know that you have been bought with a price, that you are the temple? That's why he says in that chapter, when you join yourself to a a prostitute, you're joining not only yourself, but you're joining, joining the living God. He is backing us here. God knows. Look, church discipline and dealing with sin is miserable. It's, you're not going to be fun. You're not going to want to do it. You're going to be afraid to death. But when you do it the way that I have prescribed it, what he's saying in verse 20 is, I am in your midst. Have confidence. I will back you. Even verse 19, I say to you, if two or you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done in the Father's... Even that, again, the two or three witnesses. And, and what we have in verse 20 is an amazing promise that is meant to fuel our obedience in confronting sin. It is meant to, confu- to fuel our obedience. He knows this isn't fun, that we're going to look for ways out. And he's saying, look, if you will do things my way, you have full authority to act and you have my full support. And again, it is based on the word. We're going to them and saying, look, here's the baseline. Here's word. Here's the word. You've deviated from it. Repent. Repent. And God's promise is promised. His presence is promised. When we deal with things biblically, that's the promise. When we carry this out, we are assured of His presence. And I pray as we close that we would be a church that boldly obeys God no matter the cost. That we will deal with our sin quickly and quietly and we will help others deal with theirs quickly and quietly. That we will be a reconciliatory church, a forgiving church. You get this many people in a room... This many people gathered together regularly, coming together regularly. You know what there's going to be? There's going to be offenses. There's going to be hurts. The Bashams, I don't know about y'all, we can't put four people in the same house without regularly offending or hurting people. Much less 250, 300. You know what God's Word says? When I offend Karen, lovingly, she, this is what happened, forgive me. We deal with it. Because purity is, is the issue. And I pray that we would be a church that loves God enough and loves one another enough that we would deal with our own sin, but we would also help each other deal with their sin. Amen?